A war in heaven, demons invading our planet, Satan's forces standing at the threshold. These are stories we've heard for hundreds of years. In the city of Miami, the boys and girls of homeless parents cuddle together for warmth. Whether they're sleeping in a shelter or at a bus stop, they believe one thing. God has abandoned them all, and only they can save the world. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. we got a lot of stuff to cover. This episode, we're not going to do a shout-out because we're not going to be flying any vehicles, that's why... This is actually a story I've been wanting to do for a long time, and I gotta give a shout out to the journalist who compiled this entire saga. Her name is Linda Edwards, and she wrote an article for the New Miami Times called Myths Over Miami. Let's go ahead and get started here, guys. December 25th, 1996. God is sitting in his palace in heaven. Something is pounding on the gates of heaven. His angels are running to and fro, getting their weapons to hold off the assault. But God just sits there on his throne. He's been waiting for this day, but he doesn't know how to fight back. The gates of heaven are thrown open. The armies of hell pour over the walls, climb the battlements, slaughter God's angels. And he only watches this. He can stop it at any moment. But he just watches this horror in front of him. And then he sees her. God left the palace that night. And the angels are all that's left that's keeping the world from being overrun by Satan and the forces of evil. It was the angels who first came to Earth realm. They decided they needed a place to mount a counterattack. Heaven had fallen to the forces of Satan. The angels have the ability to simply appear on earth. Since God created, it's a heavenly realm, an extension of his glory. So angels are just able to come here. Demons, though, quickly follow. They're a little more limited on how they can move about this planet. They crawl out of mirrors in the darkness. Abandoned refrigerators that litter the streets. The dumps underneath bridges. At night, those doors open up and demons can enter our world. If you ever see a Jeep Cherokee sitting on the side of the road with black tinted windows, look close. You'll see something moving in that window. That's another way a demon can invade our planet. Andre is an eight-year-old boy sitting outside a Salvation Army homeless shelter. He's talking to other homeless kids. He's telling them the story I just told you. They're sitting underneath a flickering neon light, and Andre looks up and goes, We're safe under the light. You see, angels eat light. They're always around the light. It's what gives them the ability to fly. So you're always safe in the light. Always remember that, kids. Andre tells the reporter, he gives this quote, There's a lot of killing going on in Miami. You want to fight? You want to learn how to live? 
you got to learn the secret stories. The children of Miami have created this entire mythology to explain their world. It spreads from shelter to shelter. And because a homeless person is the definition of transient, they're moving from place to place. In one homeless shelter, you'd have the children tell a part of the story, and then they would all be separated. Families would get kicked out of the shelter. They'd been there too long. Maybe a job opportunity opened up on the other side of town. They move. Maybe drug abuse, alcoholism took the parents to go somewhere else looking for those things. They remove them from the shelter. You have all these reasons why kids are leaving these shelters. But each time the kids would tell these stories and the mythology grew. You had ultimate evil in the city of Miami. And they could see it with their own eyes. They'd see drive-bys. They'd have friends of theirs who were killed, little kids, four-year-olds, eight-year-olds, ten-year-olds, shot in the head. How do you explain that? The adults had their own problems. The kids would get together and tell these tales. Not just tales of horror, but tales of survival. In the streets of Miami, there is a figure known as the Blue Lady. Pale white skin, beautiful blonde hair. Arms adorned in pink and gold and flowers. She used to live in the ocean off the coast of Miami, but now she has come to save the children of Miami, but with a caveat. You have to know her real name. If you call her name out at the time you need her the most, she will save your life. She's a symbol of hope. Here's a quote from one of these homeless children about the blue lady. If you and your friends are on a corner, on a street, when a car comes shooting bullets, and only one child yells out her true name, all will be safe. Even if bullets are tearing your skin, the blue lady makes them fall to the ground. She can talk to us, even without her name. She says, hold on. Let's meet a girl named Maria, seven years old. One day, a horrible storm hit Miami. She was with her father and her mother, and they broke into a building. The Freedom Tower is what it's known as. It's in downtown Miami. They broke in along with a bunch of other homeless people. They broke into this building to outlast this storm, which was quickly becoming a hurricane. And I have to say, I've never, ever thought about what happens to homeless people during a hurricane. I've never even considered that in my mind. And now I have this story. This girl's seven years old, and she's living this moment. It was an abandoned building. There was no electricity. The place was dark. She said the only time that she could see was when lightning struck outside the room would become illuminated. She was there with a lot of other adults, a few other families, but she was mostly focused on her parents. Her father was an alcoholic, and he was eating the last piece of food that that family had. It was a can of sardines. Lightning strikes and illuminates the room, and she sees her mom trying to get her dad to stop eating the sardines. That's all they have left. In the darkness, she hears the unmistakable sound, she's heard it several times, of her father hitting her mother. Now, they're around a bunch of other people. Lightning strikes. She sees all the other people crowded into the floor level of this building. But people are just laughing at this. They're doing nothing about it. Maria stands up for her mother, and the father turns around and punches her in the face. Argument's over. She said that her head hurt, but her stomach hurt as well. She was so hungry. And she's laying there in the corner of this room. She can feel the pain in her stomach. She feels the pain from her father's strike. She's trying to sleep as much as she can when the wind and the rain smashes a window 
in this building, she feels completely powerless. She says, quote, I was so scared. I prayed out loud. Please, God, don't punish me no more. A boy overheard her prayer. He knew the stories. He knew the secret stories that had been passed along the street. He said, hurricanes ain't God. It's Blue Lady bringing rain for the flowers. Later that night, Maria wakes up, and the Blue Lady is standing over her. She reaches down and touches her forehead. Maria says the pain went away. The Blue Lady had helped her. The Blue Lady then sang Maria a song. Maria memorized the words as best as she could. And the Blue Lady told Maria that that song would help her. Be good. Be a good person. Not like her daddy. We see this come up a lot in these secret stories in Miami. We see this idea that you have kids who are powerless, but there is this great war going on around them. They can't start arming themselves. Everyone else has guns in this area. They're in gang-infested area, drug-infested area. Your natural reaction would be to maybe join one of the gangs or get a gun yourself, defend yourself. What we see a lot in these secret stories is what the blue lady was explaining to Maria. You have to be good. We have a ton of these stories in this article that have this element where people are told, if you want to join God's army, do good in school, be a good person, make good moral choices. That's how you will become a warrior in this angelic war. Which is a very interesting component because that's something you can control. If you were to say, if you want to join this group, this militia, this holy militia or something like that, you have to train, you have to do all this stuff, you have to have these weapons. That's how we would talk about it in real life. But a child can't do any of that stuff. They can't drop $400 on infrared gear or anything like that. They can be good. They can study their textbooks. They can be a good person. But they know that death is right around the corner. These children live in an environment where at any moment... They can be executed. They can be accidentally killed in a drive-by. Their parents could kill them. These kids are living on the edge of civilization. And it's one thing to be a homeless adult. It sucks. I've been homeless before. It sucks. But I can place it in context in the story of my life. But if you're seven years old and you're homeless, you know something's wrong. Like, you know this isn't a natural state of being, but you are totally powerless about this whole thing. So you're seeing this violence on the street, and you're being told that God has left heaven. Heaven's been overrun by satanic forces. So if I die, what is there for me if I can't go to heaven? And that's when one of the other children at the shelter would tell you the truth about life after death. When you die, you become a spirit. And the children were very adamant in this article. Not a ghost. Ghost is what, what a Casper is. That's a kid's word. You become a spirit. And you can appear in front of people. But you can't talk. Not at first. They say it takes a while for you to be able to speak. A lot of times spirits will appear. They'll just be moving their mouth. They haven't mastered the ability to actually speak from beyond. It's a spirit's job to actually be a war correspondent to share stories about what is going on between the angels and the demons. So when you die, you do have a place in that world where you can deliver messages to the living, messages of support, calls for reinforcements. You can become an active participant rather than just a child who's living this nightmare. If you're good enough, 
you're a good enough person while you're alive, you can help the angels fight more than just deliver messages. One of the creepiest elements to this story, too, is this one. I hadn't heard this one before. Is that spirits and demons, once they see your face, they can track you wherever you go. You can never hide from them. It was just, this whole story I find absolutely fascinating. This is modern myth-making among a very unique subculture locked into an age range and a geographical range. They had older kids in the article going, yeah, I really don't believe that anymore. They had a 12-year-old being like, yeah, I don't really believe that anymore. But you have that age range where it makes sense. It's trying to make sense of this world. So if you're an angel or a demon or a spirit, if they ever see your face, if you ever wake up in the middle of the night and something's watching you from the darkness, you're basically, you better hope that's an angel or a spirit because they'll be able to track you wherever they go. But heaven is abandoned. Where do you go when you die? Well, you see, outside of Miami, in the swamps, there's a little place where the swamps slowly turn into a jungle. A place that's hidden from the forces of evil. But just in case they find it, this jungle is patrolled by massive alligators that will devour those who attempt to invade the last refuge of the angelic forces on Earth. Inside this jungle is a massive palace, and that is where you go when you die. But there is a ritual that these children have been told. You have to give the dead a fresh palm leaf. That's the key to get into the city. Without the fresh palm leaf, you can't get into paradise. Miguel was eight years old. I actually should say this right now. This article is from 1996, so I don't mean to throw a you know, rain bucket on your parade or anything, but a lot of these kids probably aren't alive anymore. Like This, this article is 24 years old, and these kids were having a rough go of it back then so this article wasn't written in 2020 i don't know if there's any happy endings to any of these guys you can definitely hope there is but the way they talk about there there's a i'm not gonna there this is a very long article and i recommend you guys reading i'm leaving a bunch of stuff out but one of the things one of the stories was this girl was talking to the reporter and finally earned the reporter's trust and she was drawing pictures of these different events of the different characters and stuff like that of these stories and the reporter asks, can you draw a self-portrait and the girl draws a gravestone. So, I mean, <laughs> that probably brings it down a bit. This, this has been 24 years, this eight year old kid. I hope everything's okay, but I wanted to include that detail. Miguel, he's an eight year old boy. His parents were immigrants from Nicaragua and his dad had a job at a gas station. And every night they weren't homeless at this point. They had a home. Dad had a job every night. Miguel would walk through the street and he'd bring a soda to his dad and then he would sit at the gas station for a while and then it would be time for Miguel to go to bed and he would make the walk back home, wait for his dad to come home. But one night before Miguel could get there, his father was murdered at that gas station. He was brutally murdered. He had heard through the grapevine that not only was his dad shot to death, before they did that, the murderers were lighting matches and putting them out on his body. So Miguel had heard this story. Without Miguel's father's job, the mother wasn't able to keep the apartment. She wasn't able to support Miguel, and Miguel had a younger sibling. They became homeless. So they're sleeping on the streets. It's not easy being homeless, and I I know I've said that earlier, but it's not like you're just like, oh, I'm homeless, I'm going to go to a shelter. There's waiting lists, and there's all sorts of stuff. Sometimes the shelters can be more dangerous. There's all sorts of stuff. So a lot of times there are shelters in the area, but you'll spend time sleeping on the streets. You'll spend time sleeping on bus benches. You'll spend time sleeping at churches. But every night Miguel woke up and there standing over him was his father's spirit. 
just staring down at Miguel. The spirit was beaten up, he was bloodied, and Miguel saw little flames, little dots of light all over his father's ghastly figure. The matches that had been put out on his body had followed him into the afterlife. At school, Miguel would often get caught trying to leave, trying to break out of school. And the teachers would chase him down, grab him, Miguel, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he said, I have to find my dad's grave. I have to find my dad's grave. What? What are you talking about? And he was holding, each time he did this, he'd be holding a handful of fresh palm leaves. He knew he had to get his dad into that city in the jungle. See, the teachers don't know these stories. These stories are passed around in homeless shelters. So they're like, what is going on? It sounds like gibberish. It sounds like made up. Might as well be saying he's, he has a lunch date with April O'Neil. It doesn't make sense to them. But a social worker who's spending a lot of time with kids in the homeless shelters and talking to Miguel personally goes, oh, it's this ritual he has to do. So one of his social workers takes him to the gravesite, finds out where the dad is buried, takes him to the gravesite. Miguel has the palm leaf. He's standing in the graveyard. He puts the palm leaf on the grave. Miguel says, quote, I need my daddy to find the fighter angels. I'll go there when I'm killed. Here's an interesting thing with this article. Again, it's just a very, very well-written, very well-researched article where the reporter, Linda, is actually talking to like folklorists and ethnologists, these people who really dive into how cultures are created and one of the, I think it was the folklore said, a lot of times when we look at how folklores are created, we can carry them back to a certain amount of time and say, okay, it came out of this region and then we saw it evolve. They said, when we look at the stories, the secret stories of the homeless kids of Miami, the stories all end with, like when you track it back to the beginning, they go, oh, a spirit told me. And they're like, what? Like there's no start point other than I woke up one night and a spirit told me the story about the jungle palace. And the spirits are the dispatchers, so that would make sense in their mythology. They go, we can't really track it back to a patient zero. These stories are just spreading. There's another person, I think it was a psychologist, might have been a folklorist, but they have this interesting statement. They said, when you have a child that is going through a rough patch, their parent comes down with cancer, or maybe they even have come down with cancer, something, death in the family, things like that, a child a lot of times thinks God is up there. But he's so busy, and I'm just a little tiny person. So God loves me, but he just doesn't hear me now. But if you have a child that's under constant stress, where they are homeless, at any point they can be killed, their loved ones can be killed, they meet a friend, it's their best friend for a week, and they get killed, God is absent. God does not exist in their world. They don't see God as a fatherly figure who's too busy with the other, God's gone. So they go, it is no surprise that this mythology, they have removed God. They believe that he exists, but he is, he's not ignoring them. He has abandoned them. But you still have the hope. See, the angels represent the potential of hope. There's not an absence of angelic intervention, just an absence of God. He's no longer watching over us. It's a fascinating mythology this whole thing this whole story i find so awesome and guys we're just getting started because i think we're about to move on to probably the most intriguing part of the story satan has his army but there is a demon that even satan fears it is one that we all know of her name is bloody mary 
Bloody Mary is a major figure in the Miami myths. Sometimes they use the name La Lorna. Sometimes they use the name Bloody Mary. But in this mythology, it's the same person. Bloody Mary is a figure that loves the death of children. Bloody Mary creeps through the streets of Miami, waiting for the sound of gunfire. Every time a child is shot, stabbed, beaten, murdered in the city of Miami, you can hear Bloody Mary cry out with joy. Another child is dead, and that's all that she wants. Otis is a 10-year-old girl, and when she's being interviewed by Linda about these stories, she tells Linda, I can tell you a story, but this story is very, very dangerous. No boys know this story. Because if a girl tells a boy this story that I'm about to tell you, that girl's best friend will die. Homeless girls in shelters experience something that the boys don't. They'll wake up in the middle of the night with burning scratches appearing across their arms. In the darkness, Bloody Mary is grabbing at them and trying to yank them off the bed. But it's not so much a physical yanking off the bed. Because then you're off the bed, and then what does Bloody Mary do? Just stands there? No. She's trying to pull you into a world of slavery. If Bloody Mary can get her claws in deep enough into you, you'll join a gang. You'll get addicted to crack. You'll fall into the world of madness and violence and blood. And Bloody Mary loves to kill children, but she also loves to corrupt them. Not all death is immediate, but all of it pleases Bloody Mary. However, one in 1,000 homeless girls is a special one. This is a girl who is impervious to the control of Bloody Mary. You don't know you're a special one until she appears. You'll wake up in the middle of the night, and Bloody Mary will be standing there at the edge of your bed. She goes to grab your arms, but there's no scratches. There's no claws in the skin. She's powerless to attack you. When Bloody Mary realizes that you are one of the special one, one out of 1,000 homeless girls have this ability, Bloody Mary fades away into the darkness. But for a split second, where Bloody Mary used to stand, you see a glimmering blue face. Perfectly beautiful girl. That's what Bloody Mary used to look like before she became corrupted by darkness. Bloody Mary stories are, you know, they're universal. We did a whole episode or a whole segment on Bloody Mary. It's interesting because this Bloody Mary has been transformed into a very active demon. As opposed to something, Bloody Mary, just for a quick overview, Bloody Mary started off as a parlor game. Originally, you would look in the mirror and you would see the version of your what your husband would look like standing behind you. That was how it really started off. And then that became corrupted and became something spooky. This Bloody Mary is a straight up OG. Like she, you don't, she doesn't need to pop out of mirrors. Like that's one way you can communicate with her. She has free reign of Miami. She can go wherever she wants. She is not limited to a mirror. If she sees your face once, she can find you whenever. If you're not one of the special ones and she's trying to pull you out of bed and she gets her fingers into you and you brush her off, but you can't stop it. You can do all the schoolwork you want. You can try to be the best student you can be, the best daughter you can be, the best friend you can be. But Bloody Mary is always standing behind you. And she only has to wait for you to make that one bad decision 
that leads you down that path. She's relentless. But if she's not using psychological tricks, she actually carries a rosary with her, which she uses to slash kids' faces open with. That's some brutal, that's some brutal Bloody Mary stuff. She's always been a very passive demon, but not in this world. Not in the world of the homeless children of Miami. Bloody Mary in this world will hunt you and kill you. Whether or not you invoked her yourself. If you see her, you are marked. Children also believe that they live in a world of real-life violence, and they live in a world of demonic forces. When they try to explain the two, they think, I know parents are supposed to love their children. Why don't my parents love me? Answer simple in this situation. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary is what causes your parents to fight. Bloody Mary is what causes your father to punch you in the face. Bloody Mary is the cause of all that household strife. To the point that when the kids in the shelter are talking about one of their friends who got beaten by their father, got murdered by the mom, the kids in the homeless shelter just kind of look at each other and they know. It was Bloody Mary. It was Bloody Mary who influenced that parent to harm or kill their friend. We see how all of this stuff is weaved together and it makes so much sense from a child's point of view. Why are things happening? And it's not even that things are just happening to them. If this was in the middle of nowhere and they were the only bad family that they knew of, they would internalize it more. But when you are hanging out with other homeless children, of course the myths are going to evolve to the point that they make sense. Now as an adult, we obviously know why parents abuse and murder their children. We don't understand, I guess when I say we know, we don't, we can't understand it on a human level, but we can step back and we can go alcohol, drugs, psychotic delusions, anger, and then sometimes we will even say evil. Chris Watts, who we talked about on yesterday's episode, was evil, but it was a narcissistic evil. It was an egotistical evil. His crime was horrible, and you could say demonic, but do I think Bloody Mary or a demon infused those events of those nights? I mean, I, who knows? But we can look at it psychologically and say that guy was a narcissistic evil bastard. But these children, they're not reading psychology textbooks. And even if you don't read psychology textbooks, I've been around for 44 years. You've been around for a good amount of time. We can take in our experiences. Seven, seven years old, eight years old, ten years old, trying to explain these dynamics. Bloody Mary did it. When you see that level of violence... Bloody Mary did it. They're not watching it on television like we are. They're seeing it happen on the street corners. They're seeing that empty cot in the homeless shelter. Bloody Mary did it. Let's wrap the story up like this. We're going to finish it where we began. God is sitting in his palace. It's a week before Christmas, 1996. He starts to notice things aren't right on earth. His wall has projections of every human doing everything. He's an omnipotent being, and he's watching all of reality play out in his palace. And he hears something. He hears that Satan has made a deal with Bloody Mary. God has lived since before time existed, but this frightens him. Bloody Mary had made a pact with Satan. Satan actually is afraid of Bloody Mary. Satan hates Bloody Mary. But this will get the job done. Bloody Mary says, I will help you take down God. 
and I will help you take over the earth. But I want to kill all the children. Do what you want with the adults. Do what you want with God. But you save the children of earth for me. Now, Satan gets a pretty bad rap about stuff, right? Right? Well, that's cold. That's cold. I don't want to kill anyone over the age of 12. That's, that's insane. So Satan probably has a good reason to hate Bloody Mary and to fear Bloody Mary. But he makes the deal. God is watching this play out, and he knows it's only a matter of time. God can't sleep. He can't rest. Every moment, he's kept awake by the chaos on earth. Something is going to happen soon. All he hears is crying and laughter, celebrations and misery, joy and horror. And it's louder than it's ever been before. The images on the wall are becoming more chaotic. Things are happening. The images on the wall eventually just become shadows of what's going on on Earth. But the madness continues. And then, boom, boom, boom. The gates of heaven are pounded on. Bloody Mary has the legions of hell at her back. God just waits there. The legions of hell crawl over the walls, up the battlements, invade the mansion of God. The front door is busted open, and Bloody Mary stands there. God looks at this invader, this woman with no eyeballs, just sockets, bleeding black blood. She stands in front of the creator of the universe, and he recognizes Bloody Mary. He always knew who she was. They had met before. The night he impregnated her with his son, Jesus Christ. It's not that he couldn't destroy Bloody Mary. It's that he didn't have the heart to. And so he fled. And she took that throne for herself. And the invasion of Earth began. I mean, you know, I've I've heard a lot of variations of the Bloody Mary story before. I don't think I've ever heard, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, because maybe I've mentioned in past episodes, but I don't think I've ever heard of a time that Bloody Mary has been equated with um, Mary, a mother of Jesus. But you see how that mythology is, it's perfectly weaved together. Actually, this the article is purchased for film rights. I think Clive Barker had it at one point. They're going to turn this would make. On the one hand, I can imagine this being an amazing movie, but I could also imagine it being like a 1990s New Line Cinema movie, just really trashy. So, I mean, you got the podcast version, but there's so much stuff you can dissect with this. The one, just the, the narrative alone of God leaving us of Bloody Mary being an active participant in murders. And the plot twist, plot twist, right? No one saw that coming. But it's actually Jesus's mom. Story of the Blue Lady being like one of the forces that you can fight for you, but you have to know her name. It's an interesting thing. That way you can't call out for the Blue Lady. She doesn't come to you. And then you tell the other kids at the shelter, that's fake. She doesn't come. Like I've called for her multiple times. She didn't show up. People go, that's because you don't know her real name. So there's kind of like that, safety lock on that part of the myth bloody mary's always looking for you the special ones very interesting detail it's one out of a thousand homeless girls see 
It's an entire mythology based basically in one city among a subculture of a subculture, homeless children. Absolutely fascinating. I almost feel like it would be bastardized if they turned it into a movie because you i could just imagine a bunch of like kids running around being like stop bloody mary and they're like using slingshots to stop her she's like no my only weakness stones you can find on the road when in reality this story was crafted on the bodies of dead homeless children kids actually suffered and died and this story was created to make sense of that so you know There's really not any other way to wrap this up. I will say this. I mean, obviously, it's very cinematic, but you guys know how I feel about a lot of this secret war. Maybe you guys don't. I I talk about it a lot, I think, in real life. I think I talk about it more in real life than I do on the show, but I've always had a fascination with the secret war, with something going on just out of view. The abandoned warehouse that you're driving by, you've driven by a hundred times. Inside there, there's some secret arms deal going down between Shredder and the Purple Dragons. Like, I love stuff like that. I love the idea that we live our lives blind to a whole other war going on around us. I think that's what always what always attracted me to, like, shows like Angel and things like that, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But getting back into the world of reality, this article, I think I'm very fascinated by the idea that angels and demons are duking it out on the streets of Miami. Obviously, I hope it's not true, Because it's quite bloody. But I love the narrative to it. I love the idea that somewhere out there that the angels are fighting a good war. And I love the lesson to the kids. It's the one thing you can control. If you're a good person, you can be a part of this war. Which is, again, like they can't control anything else but how they interact with each other. So amazing lessons coming out of these myths. Like I said, this article, I said earlier, is 1996. It came out in 1997, but I think it's fascinating to see if someone else would go down there and investigate these stories more, how they've evolved. Now I think the myth would actually spread quicker, but it's still very, very unique to a population of homeless children who have to tell themselves stories to make sense of a violent and chaotic world. But really, I guess even adults still do that. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. Twitter is at DeadRabbitRadio. And DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great weekend, guys, and I'll see you Monday.